0: Hello and thank you for joining for episode number 144 of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul and in this episode we welcome Dimitris Kamuzis. He is a researcher at the Centre for Asia Minor Studies in Athens and author of Greeks in Turkey, Elite Nationalism and Minority Politics in Late Ottoman and Early Republican Istanbul, published by Routledge. The book explores how ideas of Greek nationalism and unity with the Kingdom of Greece spread among Istanbul's Greek Orthodox community from the 19th century to the declaration of the Republic of Turkey in 1923 and indeed beyond. These were of course critical years that saw cataclysmic developments ultimately proving very nearly fatal for the Greeks ancient presence in Istanbul. But before we get started with the interview let me just remind you that you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 at Turkey Book Talk. Also remember that you can support the podcast by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you various extras including an exclusive discount of 30% off the price of all books published in IB, Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 30% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and eBooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive transcripts in English and translated into Turkish of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published and you also get transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member just pledge $3 or £2.50 per episode via Turkey Book Talks Patreon page If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. And of course you're able to sign up wherever you are in the world. Patreon handles all that. But now onto our conversation with Demetrius Karmouzis. The 19th century saw the emergence of the Megali idea, the Great Idea, in Greece which envisaged reviving the Byzantine Empire and establishing a state that would include the Greek Orthodox populations that were still under Ottoman rule after the end of the Greek War of Independence. In the Ottoman Empire meanwhile, the 19th century also of course saw the Tanzimat reforms which aimed to centralise and modernise the administration of the Empire after 1839 So I started by asking Dimitris Kamuzis how these two developments affected Istanbul's Greek Orthodox community at the time. Uh,
1: There are two historical turning points which uh, basically facilitated the emergence and the establishment of a leadership group, Greek leadership group in the Ottoman capital, willing to actively pursue the the national and territorial unification of the Ottoman Greeks uh, with the Greek nation and Greece. And the first one is uh, the Greek War of Independence between 1821 and 1830 and the second major event is the Tanzimat reforms from 1839 to 1876. Uh, these two events changed completely the course of uh, of life of the Greeks living in the Ottoman Empire and it was also the beginning of the dissemination of uh, of the gradual dissemination of Greek nationalism in the Ottoman Empire. The Greek Revolution and the consequent establishment of an independent Greek state in 1830 and then of an uh, autocephalous church in 1833 uh, split the Orthodox Greeks into two categories, we might say, those born within the 1832 boundaries of the new state and the ones who were born outside the Kingdom of Greece. And in a sense, it was also the beginning of, uh, of an ideology that would dominate Greek politics uh, until 1922, and that was the Megalidea, there, uh, the Great Idea. The Great Idea basically was the effort of uh, the Greek state and the autochthons Greeks, the ones living in the, in the Kingdom of Greece, to liberate, as uh, they believed, their unredeemed brothers in the Ottoman Empire. So the Megali idea becomes the main ideological force behind the political uh, efforts of, of the Greek state with regards to the Greek populations living within the boundaries of the Ottoman Empire. The second major event within this process were the Tanzimat reforms. The Tanzimat reforms again changed the Ottoman society and brought, in a sense, the Greeks of the Ottoman Empire closer to the Greek state, at least from uh, an ideological point of view. So, the principles of Tanzimat, which were proclaimed in 1839, basically declared the protection and respect of the life, honor, and property of all the subjects of the Sultan, and guaranteed their equality in the eyes of the law, regardless of their religion. So, the political expression of the whole project was called Ottomanism. And the main idea was to create a common Ottoman citizenship for all the peoples of the empire without distinction. So the Hati Humayun of 1856 introduced also significant changes in the administration of the Greek Orthodox community and basically recognized the participation of, of the lay strata of the Greek Orthodox community in the administration of the of the Greek Orthodox Milet through the Permanent National Mixed Council. And from this point on, the Permanent National Mixed Council was responsible for the supervision of schools, hospitals, uh, public welfare institutions, and so on. Therefore, we see that the uh, participation of the lay strata in the administration of the Greek Orthodox Milet allowed them also to disseminate uh, the Greek national ideology through education, through administration of schools. And in a sense, there was a kind of gradual cultural Hellenization of the Ottoman Greeks, at least of the middle and upper strata of the Greek Orthodox community, not only in Istanbul, but also in in the main urban centers of the empire.
0: And obviously the book focuses on the period after 1918, so after the First World War, and after this series of violent cataclysms on various fronts as the Ottoman Empire slowly collapsed, basically. And um, a lot of your focus is on Istanbul under occupation. So the Allied forces, basically Britain, uh, and to a lesser extent France, Italy and Greek forces, basically controlled Istanbul from the end of the First World War in November 1918 until the emergence of the Republic of Turkey in October 1923. And you describe in great detail how throughout this period, 1918 to 1920, Constantinople's or Istanbul's Greek intelligentsia supported and reinforced uh, Greek nationalism in the capital. So there was this spreading of Greek national ideology and the dissemination of ideas about uh, the Greek race and history through uh, various things, newspaper articles, pamphlets, poems, songs, speeches, celebrations, fundraisers, public events, public demonstrations, athletic events. And crucially, this involved the spread of the idea of Enosis, so the Greeks of Istanbul basically demanding unification with Greece. Talk about how that actually represented a shift from before, because as I understand it from the book, support for the idea of unity with Greece among the Orthodox Greeks in Istanbul was previously rather a minority, almost elite thing that didn't really have mass appeal. Is that right? And if so, who was responsible for this shift in public sentiment and why did it happen?
1: Yeah, um, you're absolutely right uh, in, on your assessment. What happens is that until 19, 1908, yes, there was an ethno, um, a group with ethnocentric orientations within the leadership of the Greek Orthodox um, community, but uh, the role was marginal. They had a significant role when it came down to education and to the network of schools and associations established in the Ottoman Empire from the mid-19th century. Uh, but when it came down to politics, it was mostly the, the upper class composed of uh, the of the neo-Fanariots and uh, the wealthy bankers who controlled things. And they were, in a sense, their affiliation with the Greek ethnic identity did not contradict also their um, devotion to the idea of Ottomanism and the protection of uh, of the empire of the integrity of the empire things changed uh, not immediately after the, the young turk revolution but it changed when when the committee of union and progress shifted its policies from ottomanism to choosing uh, as the best policy as the best imperial policy turkish nationalism so when the Committee of Union and Progress started identifying Ottomanism with uh, Turkism, then the non-Muslims of, of the Empire, and, and especially the, the Greek Orthodox and the Armenians, started also identifying Ottomanism uh, also along ethnic lines. Uh, at some point, after the, 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 the Young Turk Revolution in 1908, we have the establishment of the Society of Constantinople, of Organos Konstantinopoleos, And the society started initiating members of uh, mostly of the uh, middle uh, social uh, strata into um, a political approach that had Greek ethnocentric purposes. And the break, let's say, the final break of that fragile cohesion of Ottoman society happened with uh, the Balkan wars. Because the Balkan Wars, at least for the Committee of Union and Progress, was perceived as the the final proof of the disloyalty of the non-Muslims and non-Turks. And from 1913 onwards and until 1918, there were policies of Turkifying the Ottoman society through both physical and structural violence which uh, targeted the Armenians and the the Greeks of the empire. At the same time, the leadership of the Rum Mileti during that period assumed a passive stance uh, with regards to the policies of of the Unionists. They did not respond in a really uh, active manner towards what at the time uh, was perceived by the population as a violation of uh, their communal rights. So after the the signing of the armistice of uh, of Mudros in late 1918 the population was uh, was ready to support the redentist program of the Megali idea and of the Enosis of the unification with Greece. And what happened was the re-emergence of the Greek nationalist uh, elite as the leadership of the Greek Orthodox community of Istanbul, obviously, which also meant as the leadership of the Greek Orthodox uh, Milet. So their nationalism uh, falls within the concept of elite nationalism. And at the top of that policy was the devotion to the, the cult figure of Eleftherios Venizelos, who was perceived as the creator of Greater Greece.
0: One little footnote here, it may come as a surprise to some listeners, but uh, immediately after the First World War in these years that we're talking about, 1918, 1919, 1920, there was actually a proportional rise in the number of Greeks and Armenians actually compared to Muslims in Istanbul according to the official population records. So the number of Muslims actually went down while the number of Greeks and Armenians rose. Maybe surprising to some listeners.
1: Yes, there is uh, a very uh, very strong Greek and Armenian element in, uh, in population terms in Istanbul. But the way that they are perceived uh, by Venizelos and the Greek official policy is more as the leadership of the Milet and how they can support that whole policy rather than being part of the areas that would be liberated. I mean, uh, Venizelos has focused on Smyrna, has focused on, on the western coast of Asia Minor, and Istanbul plays a role of kind of a symbolic center which has to endorse the policy of the Megali Idea in order to make it legitimate to the eyes of the uh, Orthodox Greeks of the Empire. So... It's it's an interesting point you make, although, that, although you have an, a numerical, a very strong Greek element. In numerical terms, at the same time, there is never, at least at the way we see Venizelos in his mind, the idea of actually claiming Istanbul when uh, he negotiates the areas that he's interested in getting from the talks at the peace conference.
0: Now, we're talking here about uh, the Greeks of Constantinople. Demanding uh, unification with Greece right. and this actually as you describe in the book sent shot waves really through the local authorities both the Ottoman remnants and the allies who basically controlled things. So what was the stance of the uh, occupying British in particular in all this As I understand it, they were increasingly alarmed at this tinderbox situation that, that they felt could get out of control.
1: Yes, the, the British especially were alarmed and afraid and that things would really get out of hand, and right, rightfully so. The Greek leadership, both the lay leadership and the religious leadership of, of the Greeks, Supported very openly the Megali Idea, as you said, through demonstrations, through the Greek press, through memoranda, through um, signed petitions, and so on. And obviously, this uh, was not something that the Ottoman authorities, the port, uh, as well as the the Ottoman uh, the Ottoman Turks, perceived in a in a, in a positive manner. And the British from the beginning were uh, issuing uh, warnings to the uh, the leadership of the Greek Orthodox community to be cautious, to avoid uh, these over-enthusiastic pro-Greek demonstrations and so on, but to no avail. The leadership continued to try to generate popular nationalism. And especially after the, the Greek landing at Smyrna in May 1919, the situation became uh, very tense just a few days after the, the Greek landing at Smyrna. There were massive demonstrations that took place in Istanbul by the Ottoman Muslims against the Greek landing. And as most of the British diplomats and officers started communicating letters back to London, saying that from the moment that the Greeks landed uh, in Smyrna, the the Turks could not accept that that was a, a big insult to feel that they were occupied by Greece. That was that went beyond what they perceived as an Allied occupation, and in their eyes became a Greek occupation, and that made obviously the friction between the different populations and the different ethnic groups within Istanbul, very intense, creating um, an atmosphere of clear animosity.
0: I want to talk now about the national schism that uh, emerged in Greece at the time and actually was there before. Now this is far from my area of knowledge, so do forgive me if I sound like a bit of an idiot here, but basically as I understand it, there was this schism between royalists and supporters of Venizelos. The All right. Of the, the Greek um, National Liberation Movement, who was among the leaders of the Greek forces pushing into Anatolia, and that schism, that lack of unity, had a major effect, and it was key in the failure actually of the Greek advance in Anatolia. Could you just talk about how that national schism between the Venizelists and the Royalists was reflected in Istanbul, and is it correct to say that it was key in the in the failure of the the Greek forces advancing into Anatolia?
1: Yes, uh, definitely. Well. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about the national schisms because it's a, it's a very uh, long and and complicated part of Greek history but to say it in in, in few words it's it's basically the, the antagonism between Venizelos and King Constantine and their supporters. Uh, Venizelos, uh, from the beginning of World War I, wanted Greece to enter the war on the side of, of the Allies, especially the British, due to the fact that he believed in the role of, of uh, Great Britain in the Near East, and he felt that Greece next to Britain in the Near East could secure, let's say, its, its, its place and its future in the region. On the other hand, King Constantine, who was has also, he was related also to the uh, family of, of German emperor, was against entering the war on the side of the Entente at the same time, uh, he recognized the fact that Great Britain was the dominant power in the region, so therefore he supported neutrality. And it took a major class between Venizelos and King Constantine and between their supporters with the revolutionary government in Thessaloniki uh, created by Venizelos for Greece to finally enter the war on the side of the Allies in 1917 and then be able to claim parts of the collapsing Ottoman Empire during the post-war peace negotiations. So what happened with regards now to to Istanbul and the continuation of Of the Asia Minor campaign is the fact that Venizelos, uh, after the the signing uh, of the the Treaty of Sevres, which basically, at least on paper, created that vision of of Greater Greece, two continents and five seas, decided to hold elections for November 1920, believing that after that diplomatic triumph, he would be uh, re-elected. The problem is that King Alexander was poisoned by the pyre of a monkey and died. And then again, the issue of whether King Constantine, who had been expelled by Greece, I I forgot to mention, would return to Greece and reclaim again the Greek throne. So the elections of November 1920 more or less became an unofficial referendum between Venizelos and Constantine I. Venizelos lost the elections due to the fact that the Greek population was exhausted by the continuous uh, absence of Greek men and Greek troops Already since the Balkan Wars, there was the promise of by the united opposition, the royalist united opposition, that the troops would return. And after uh, Venizelos lost the elections, there was a referendum for the return of King Constantine I, who returned. And that changed completely the, the way uh, the Allies, including the British it altered let's say their attitude towards greece and they gave them the opportunity to disentangle from uh, from a situation that was becoming difficult in asia minor and basically used the return of King Constantine as a pretext to claim that since the new government decide to call a treacherous king back to Greece, then our attitude towards Greece would change and would not support, either with financial means or with means of weapons and so on, the campaign of the Greek army in Asia Minor. So the the Greek state was basically left on its own powers to impose the Treaty of Sèvres, the terms of the Treaty of Sèvres, to the Turkish nationalist movement that had been organized by Mustafa Kemal from the Greek landing in May 1919 onwards in in Anatolia. And again, it changed the attitude of the Constantinopolitan Greek leadership, who devoted to Venizelos uh, for the first time decided to take matters on their own hands and pursue an autonomous and independent political approach to the whole idea of fulfilling the the project of, of the Megalidea, of the Great Idea, and created that political antagonism between Venizelis Constantinople and Royalist Athens, which lasted from November 1920 until September 1922.
0: Now, zooming out a bit now, taking a bird's eye view, the book describes this process of gradual nationalization, gradual spreading of support for enosis among the Greek Orthodox denizens of Istanbul. And you actually describe that as a fatal embrace, effectively, that would ultimately lead to the downfall of the community. I just wonder why you think that's the case, and if so, you know, was there any alternative to this process of gradual kind of hardening of sentiment? Could, in some scenario, the Greek Orthodox minority elites have followed a different strategy, perhaps one more amenable with their sort of Muslim counterparts in the city? Or is that too naive? Was this push to uncompromising extremes on both sides essentially inevitable?
1: This is a very good question and this is something that I've thought several times while I was I was reading and while I was writing this book. And you know what they say, like with uh with if's you cannot write history. But let's try what if. My idea is that it would be very difficult. I, I don't I do not think that there was any other choice. I think that from nineteen twelve onwards, both Greeks and Turks entered the, the path of conflict and you had two mutually antagonistic uh, nationalisms, and eventually what would happen once the empire collapsed would be either for, for Greece to manage and fulfill to a certain extent the great idea and control parts of the the Ottoman Empire, or you would have a Turkish national state as it happened. So if we think that the Constantinopolitan Greek leadership had had any other choice, there were voices within the leadership circles of the community to try and follow a policy which would not be so aggressive and which would not be so publicly in favor of Greece, of Venizelos, of Greek nationalism, and so on. Uh, These voices were ignored, but at the same time, we need to see the context at that moment. I think no one really believed within the Greek Orthodox leadership, and I would say within um, and amongst the the population, especially in the uh, urban centers of the empire that the empire would be able to salvage itself and and for the Ottoman Turks to again become a dominant power within the empire. So I would say that at that specific moment, first, the Greek leadership had no other choice. and, And secondly, I would say that these are the people who would control communal affairs at that moment because the context at least from 1918 onwards, facilitated their dominance over communal affairs. I mean, I'm talking about the Greek nationalists. There is this, uh, this description of, of Georgios Theotokas who was a famous Greek author who was a child, teenager at the time, in Istanbul, and he was a member of the, of the Boy Scouts. And he describes also you know, the enthusiasm of uh, the Greek population when and the Allied fleet, and especially battleship Averov when they entered the Bosporus, So you realize that it would be very difficult for the Greeks to have a different leadership at the time, one that would be more diplomatic with regards to how they dealt with, with the Ottoman authorities, and also one that would follow different policies. This uh, leadership group would come again into uh, communal affairs after 1922, when the Greek nationalist elite fled to Greece in late 1922.
0: Yeah. And of course, that whole process didn't happen in isolation as well. You know, there was a kind of radicalization on both sides, essentially. So um, really, it was it set in motion a kind of grim kind of cycle of uh, inevitability, really. In exactly. A way, a dynamic that emerged. Um, exactly. With the uh, Treaty of Lausanne in 1923 and with the founding of the Republic of Turkey, the Greeks in Istanbul were actually allowed to stay after the establishment of the Turkish Republic. Turkey and the talks in Lausanne actually pushed for them to be removed, along with, you know, the rest of the, the Greeks, Christians of Anatolia. And some left from Istanbul, but many stayed. Why was that the case? What was the key difference between the Greeks of Istanbul and the Greeks of Anatolia?
1: Right. Well, the Treaty of Lausanne and the signing of the Convention for the Exchange of Populations basically came to uh, provide an official context to institutionalize, let's say, what something a fair complete something that had already happened. So with, uh, with the collapse of the Asia Minor Front, the retreat of the Greek army, the destruction of Smyrna, the violent uprooting of the people on the western coast of Asia Minor, the, uh, the, th- the hundreds of thousands of, of, of Asia Minor Greek refugees arriving in Greece, there had to be an agreement where it would provide, let's say, official rules of what would be called the Greek-Turkish exchange of populations. Greece, for sure, once the Greeks from the western coast of Asia started arriving and then once people from Cappadocia and Pontus were included in, in the exchange, it would be very difficult for the Greek state to receive also uh, more refugees from, from Istanbul. So that was, let's say, there was a practical reason. And the second thing, obviously, was uh, the institution of the Ecumenical Patriarchate, which the Greek, uh, the Greek government felt that it should remain in Constantinople for symbolic reasons, for political reasons. There was also a big support to that policy by the Christian world, especially in Europe. Uh, Great Britain Britain played also a major role and the US also in having the Patriarchates in Constantinople. So, despite Turkish delegations' request and them insisting uh, in Lausanne in the negotiations in Lausanne for for the Greek Orthodox population to be removed of Istanbul, to be removed from Turkey along with the Ecumenical Patriarchate. Eventually, they decided to allow the Greek Orthodox minority of Istanbul to stay within the, the boundaries of the prefecture of, of Istanbul. And with regards to the ecumenical Patriarchate of Constantinople, there was only a verbal agreement. It was not put on paper that it could also remain and have its seat in the fanar, as it had for uh, centuries. And there was a reciprocal kind of gesture and you had also the Muslims of Western Thrace who were recognized also as a minority in Greece. And they were the, in a sense, that these two minorities were the ones who were excluded. And then approximately about 300,000 to 350,000 Muslims from Macedonia and Thrace were also forced to migrate to Turkey. So, this is in a nutshell how the two minorities were exempted from the exchange of populations.
0: And finally, the uh, Constantinople Greeks, so people with roots in Istanbul, who had moved over to Greece in the 1920s, continued to form a kind of lobbying group, really, or an interest mm. group in Greece during that decade. And they took quite a hardline, uncompromising position, even an irredentist position, including a revival of the uh, Megali idea. But at the same time as that was happening, Turkey and Greece resumed talks and negotiations and they signed a series of agreements which culminated in the full normalization of relations in 1930. So could you just talk to conclude for us about how that dynamic worked throughout the 1920s? Because the normalization of relations between Turkey and Greece in 1930 is quite surprising I think to some people because just 10 years before the two were at war. Feelings were extremely bitter, and then within a decade, Venezuelos was uh, on an official visit to Turkey, welcomed by Ataturk, and everybody was mm-hmm. very, very uh, warm with each other. Very strange dynamic uh, in in retrospect, but just talk about how that worked, really.
1: Right. Um, so basically, after the Asia Minor catastrophe, uh, as it's known in, in Greek historiography of the summer of 1922, these Constantinopolitan these Greek elites who supported the uh, Megali idea and Greek retentism so visibly and public in Istanbul, feared that similar uh, atrocities like the ones that happened in Smina would happen in Istanbul once the city was given from the Allies to the Kemalist forces. And there was a massive wave of of migration, from Istanbul to Greece, uh, specifically towards the two major Greek cities of Athens and Thessaloniki. There is an estimate of about 40,000 people moving to Greece uh, from September until December 1922. That population was composed of mostly a middle and upper class, people belonging to the middle and upper class strata. When they arrived in in Greece, and especially after the, uh, the agreements Change of populations sort of the Treaty of Lausanne found themselves as, as we say, no man's land. They could not benefit from the fact that they were members of, of an officially recognized minority because the Turkish authorities would not allow them to return to Istanbul and reclaim their properties and enjoy their properties, considering them as, uh, as traitors. And at the same time, they could not benefit from the uh, refugee schemes uh, applied in Greece after 1923, and especially after the after the League of Nations and the Refugee Settlement Commission was set up. So they found themselves in, in a position where they, in a neutral position that they were not really able to either go back or at least settle in Greece, having the same rights as the rest of, of the refugees. Therefore, they started pushing for the recognition of of their uh, rights as uh, members of the minority. They started pushing the Greek government, as you said, and lobbying for them to be able to return to Istanbul, to enjoy their properties, And they opposed the confiscation of their properties, which happened throughout the 1920s by the the Turkish authorities. And when, finally, Venizelos decided to become again actively involved into uh, Greek politics in uh, in 1928, and when he was elected, they felt that Venizelos would resume his uh, aggressive policy towards Turkey, And this is also the reason why uh, that Kostanopolitan Greek elite, that leadership in exile, supported Venizelos. A lot of their prominent members were also members of, of the Liberal Party. They were elected, they became members of Venizelos' cabinet, and then they believed that finally they would be able to claim their rights, their properties, and the right to return to Istanbul. As you said correctly, this did not happen. Uh, Venizelos said it a lot of times publicly and said it also in private with members of of the Cosmopolitan Greek elite that Greece uh, had turned the page, that the Megali then, the Redentist plan, was something, uh, was a policy that belonged in the past, that after 1922, the main political project was to uh, rebuild the country, a country that was exhausted in financial and social terms and needed to uh, stand on its its feet and, and move forward. And therefore, he pursued a policy of making peace with all the neighboring countries including Turkey. The result of that was the Ankara Agreement of nineteen thirty, which as you said was a turning point in Turkey's relations. It was it was a period of, of rebuilding, it was a period of peace. And this is something that the Constantinopolitan Greeks, the absent Constantinopolitan Greeks, as they became known, did not expect and did not and did not accept due to the fact that that meant, first of all, that they would not be able to return to Istanbul. And also it meant that they would not be compensated with regards to the properties they left behind. The members of, of that elite who were part of the Liberal Party and who were part of these associations, uh, supported, with some exceptions, uh, supported Venizelos' policy. Policy. But at the end of the day, the majority of, of that group suffered the consequences of the 1930 agreement, which made their life in Greece even harder and made them into permanent exiles because they never managed to return to Istanbul.
0: That was Dimitris Karamuzis. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 144. Remember, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support it by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 30% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just pledge $3 or £2.50 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account, also, do rate or review Turkey Book Talk on whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, or via Twitter, or via our Facebook page, or all of them. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any recommendations, feedback, or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to check out Friends of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that's put together by the journalists Razier Akkoch and Diego Kupolo. It's a package bringing together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. Go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening.